About 10 years ago, I gave this message, and a lot has changed in 10 years, as I'm sure it has in 10 years of your life as well. Life has a way of experiences that uh, all of a sudden take a truth that we've had in our hearts before and just enlarges it to a, a, a place where it hasn't been. And I was encouraged 10 years ago going through some different trials. And within the last year, some other things that were going on reminded me of this particular part of Scripture in First Peter. And I thought it was appropriate because a lot of times we need to be reminded of where we've been and where we are. And a lot of times we forget about how God has got us through some difficult times, circumstances, situations, and we move on. But God has a way of reminding us that he's not finished with us, that there is more in store for each one of us. In our world today, we're faced with many uncertainties, whether it be outside of ourselves or within. And the troubles of this world have a way of wearing us down day by day. We often lose our perspective and look for temporary solutions. We have churches that guarantee all types of healings, churches that proclaim that we live our best life now, and churches that focus more on the exterior rather than the interior of our souls. And there is confusion and disconnection amongst many churches. This morning we're going to be looking at a passage in Peter of encouragement. Peter wants us to focus in on our inheritance. Because going through life, sometimes we forget what we have to look forward to. And you might say, well, what is an inheritance anyway? Many of you might have been the recipients of an inheritance. Some of you that are older may have a will to gift somebody an inheritance. But really, the the word is a meaning that someone who has appointed to receive an inheritance, an heir is a person who receives something of value from a person who's known or unknown. This person who's an heir is mentioned in one's will. The definition says the act of inheriting property, the reception of genetic qualities such as your children that you've, they've inherited from you, certain traits, characteristics, the acquisition of possessions or a trait from past generations, something that is or may be inheritant of value. I don't know if you're familiar with the show on TV called Strange Inheritance. I kind of like that show because it really exposes the different things that people inherit. I was watching a couple weeks ago, and this one woman inherited 10,000 toy soldiers from her husband. They had a full room, beautiful room, encased in glass with all these different types of soldiers from the Civil War up. It was worth quite a sum of money, too. Also, there is a great collection of Barbie dolls that one lady left to her daughter. I mean, hundreds of Barbie dolls, and some of them were very valuable. Another one left some old movies, pictures. The one I really enjoyed was the one that a father left his daughter. He was a a lumberjack up in the Redwoods. 
And what he did is he took a redwood that was big enough that he could fit in, hollowed it out, and made it a home. It was the original tiny house at the time. So you see, there's so many different things that are inherited. A young man asked an old rich man how he made his money. And the old guy fingered his worst wool vest suit and said, Well, son, it was in 1932, the depth of the Great Depression. I was down to my last nickel. I invested that nickel in an apple. I spent the entire day polishing that apple, and at the end of the day, I sold the apple for 10 cents. The next morning, I invested those 10 cents to two apples. I spent the entire day polishing them and sold them at 5 o'clock for 20 cents. I continued this system for a month, and by the end of that month, I had accumulated a fortune of $1.37. And the the young man says, and that's how you built your empire? Heavens no, the man replied. My wife's father died and left us $2 million. (laughs) A certain lawyer was reading a will of a rich man to the people mentioned in that will. To you, my loving wife Rose, who stood by me in rough times as well as good, I leave her the house and $2 million. And the lawyer continued, to my daughter Jessica, who looked after me in sickness and kept, me, kept the business going, I left her the yacht and the business and $1 million. And the lawyer concluded, and to my cousin Dan, who hated me, argued with me, and thought that I would never mention him in my well, well, you're wrong. Hi, Dan. If I ask the question this morning, would you like the good news or the bad news first? It may be a question of are you a pessimist or are you an optimist? Whatever answer, you're going to receive some kind of news. Last week, Steve was talking about the eloquent of words and wisdom. And I'm here this morning telling you I'm neither eloquent nor wise. But the words of God's word are filled with wisdom. Conviction, hope, promises, compassion, truth, encouragement. And I hope that this section in First Peter will speak to you instead of my words. Father, I thank you for this time. Thank you for the people that are here. And I pray that your wood would go forth, not mine, but yours, Lord, to change hearts, change perspectives, to put a, a new perspective, Lord, in our minds to see what you have waiting for those who are yours. So I pray, Father, that as we look at your word this morning, that you would bless it to your glory in Jesus' name. As you have in front of you the outline, First Peter 1, I'm going to read verses 1 through 9 to give us some context. It says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are exiled... Elect in the dispersion in Pontius, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for the sprinkling with his blood. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. Blessed be God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy. He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, 
undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it's tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him now, you believe in him and rejoice with him that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. There is a lot in those verses. Not enough time this morning to go through. I just want to highlight some of the things that God laid on my heart that I hope encourages you as well. You might call the Apostle Paul the Apostle of Faith, John the Apostle of Love, and Peter is considered the Apostle of Hope. Peter wants his readers to never give up hope, having their eyes always fixed on the hope who they have put their trust and faith in, no matter what. A hope that is living now, and a hope that will become eternal. Peter knows firsthand what it's like to be persecuted and run, especially when he denied knowing Christ three times, but was redeemed when he encountered the risen Lord who asked him three times again, Do you love me, Peter? He understands the struggle, but his eyes were fixed on his final destination. His best was yet to come. A brief background to give you some context. During the first century, under the reign of Emperor Nero, These new believers in Christ faced many types of persecutions and hardships. Although they were not necessarily hunted or murdered, they were still outcasts of the Roman society. They could expect persecution socially and economically. And from three main areas, the Roman government, the Jewish population, and their own family and friends. Almost all of these new believers would be misunderstood. Many would be harassed and few tortured. First, these Christians had no legal status in the Roman Empire. However, they were compelled to obey the Roman law. The Roman government considered these Christians as part of the Jewish religion, making them a legal part of the society, just as the Jews were. However, the Jewish population population did not appreciate being legally connected with this new movement, as expressed in the book of Acts. Jewish people regularly harassed them physically, drove them out of their towns, and attempted to turn the Roman government against them. And as we know, they had an enemy in the Apostle Paul before his conversion, who hunted them, tortured them, and even murdered them in the call of duty. And thirdly, they were persecuted by their own family and friends. Under Roman law, the head of the household had absolute authority over all its members. Unless the ruling male became a believer, the rest of the family could and usually did face many types of hardships. They were often sent away with nowhere else to go, and if they were continuous and they were continuously beaten, the Roman court of law would always turn its head. Peter may have written this letter specifically to those new Christians who were in the dispersion. He wanted them 
to be, he wanted to warn them of what may lay ahead as they began their new walk with Christ. And Peter, known as this apostle of hope, in this first letter, makes sure that he encourages those new believers. There are multitudes of believers being persecuted in our faith today, the 21st century. Just turn on the news. Look across the globe. Any reports that come from different parts of the Middle East, you know that Christians are being tremendously persecuted to the point of death. We don't face that in our society here. We face other types of persecutions. Christians today face similar things, not usually death-threatening, but they face persecution from fellow workers, family, and friends. We are a threat to a progressive secular society. Much of our current education system is designed to rewrite history to explain away the facts of our Christian heritage, which is our country's foundation. We cannot escape the pain or illness or the trials of life, but in those difficult times, we have the same God that Peter encouraged those early believers to trust in. We may face times of discouragement, despair, stress, heartache, emotional breakdowns, physical ailments, and so on. But our God remains the same. In the first two verses, Peter makes a point that this letter is addressed to God's elect scattered throughout the land. Persecution didn't stop the spread of the gospel. It fueled the spread of the gospel, as it does today. At one time, only the nation of Israel could claim to be God's chosen. But now, through Christ, all who believe, whether they're Jew or Gentile, belong to God. Our salvation and its security rest completely in the free and merciful choice of Almighty God. No form of trials or persecution can ever take away or else it would not be called eternal life. Another important insight is that the Trinity is mentioned quite clearly in verse 2. Peter's letter to those early believers is a letter to us here today. My prayer is that no matter what you are going through right now, I hope you leave encouraged, energized, and hopeful of what God has given by his great mercy and grace. And if you are not sure, I pray that this message causes you to rethink your final destination. The best is yet to come. You can become an heir of this great inheritance. In your outline, we're going to look at three areas to grasp God's glory. First, we have the hope of our salvation. Secondly, the joy of our salvation. Third, the testimony of our salvation. But first, let's look at number one. Believers are born for glory. The first phrase of verse three sets our theme. Our goal is to worship God, to see God's great reality with our minds, to sense God's great beauty and wonder with our hearts and to speak and sing of God's greatness with our voices and our lives. To understand what God has done, is doing now, and what he will do in the future. To comprehend that our inheritance is at the present and what we have kept for us in the future. It is a letter of hope and encouragement. Hope for the future, 
and encouragement for the present. The reality of God's great mercy and care for those who are called, those who have a personal relationship in Christ, and those who have trusted him for this great salvation. That's what Peter did when he wrote about their new birth. He says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And that's what we should be doing. Now, what truth, what great reality brought Peter to this exaltation? If we limit our answer just to verse 3 and 4, there are four great realities about God that gripped Peter's mind, heart, and led him to write this letter of hope. The first reality, as you read there, is God's great or abundant Limitless mercy. It says, Blessed be God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy. Just a reminder, if you're wondering what mercy is, great mercy is that God is withholding what we deserve. Great mercy. The second reality is God determined us to be born again. It says further, who according to his great mercy has caused, who? God has caused us to be born again to a living hope. We are reminded of the verse that says, no one comes to the Father unless the Father draws him. This new birth is God's work. His great mercy, not our works, produce a new life of which we are called a child of God and aliens to this world and become heirs to this great inheritance. Let me ask you this question. How do you know you're born? How would you answer that? I'm alive. I exist outside my mother's womb. I'm here. And you would be right. And that's all the answer that's needed. Would you not answer, I know I was born because I've got a birth certificate at home that has my name on it. Or, I know I was born because I did some historical research at a hospital in San Francisco and found a document with little footprints on it that matched the curly lines in the bottom of my foot. Those of you who are older understand that little thing. Well, I think they're doing it today, too, still, aren't they? Or I collected signed affidavits of three or four witnesses, the doctor, the nurses, that saw my mother pregnant and then soon after saw me in her arms. I know I'm alive. But suppose now I ask you, the average churchgoer, how do you know you're born again? How many would answer, because I'm alive to God? I have a living hope. I have a saving faith. I once had no spiritual life, and now I'm alive spiritually. I once, I am alive spiritually with spiritual appetites, spiritual desires. Once I was dead, and now I am alive. I know him, I love him, I trust in him, and I have put my hope in him and will follow him. The proof we are born again is our life each day. How are we expressing that inward glory through our outward living? How many others might say, I know I was born again because I did what you must do to be born again. I asked Jesus into my heart. I prayed to receive Christ. I walked down an aisle and accepted Jesus. I have a card here in my wallet that was signed on June 6, 1982, where I pledged that Jesus is my Lord and Savior. Why would there be such a difference in answering how we know 
if we were physically born and how we know if we are spiritually born. One reason is that we know beyond a shadow of a doubt that we had nothing to do with our physical birth. It was done to us. We did not cause it. We did not choose it. It happened to all of us. And all we can do is be thankful or resent it. So it doesn't even occur to us to prove we are born by appealing to the things that we did not do to get born. There aren't any anyway. We didn't cause it. It caused us. But when it comes to our spiritual birth, our new birth, millions of believers don't believe that. They don't believe that our second birth was done to us and that we did not choose it or cause it. We have been taught in hundreds of ways that we ourselves bring about our own new birth, that we choose it and we cause it. So when we are asked, how do you know it happened? We tend to answer, because I did the things I was taught to do to teach how to be born again. We don't say, with reality and authenticity, because I am alive to God. I was a sinner and needed a savior. It's not surprising then that that kind of Christianity grows up around us. That self-understanding, self-made Christian existence, which does not explode with praise over our new birth, and say with Peter, Blessed be God. Oh, blessed in praise and thank and love. And his great mercy has caused us to be born again. There was a man walking through a doorway, and above the entrance was a sign that said, Whosoever will may come. And as he passed through the door, he turned around, and he saw another sign on the doorway that said, I chose you before the foundation of the earth. That puts it in perspective, doesn't it? Blessed be God, our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. The third reality is God raised Christ from the dead. Verse 21 of verse Peter says, makes it more explicit. It says, God raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that our faith and hope are in him. The resurrection is about God. He did it. So we trust in him. We hope in him. And Peter says, blessed be God. We must understand that we did not raise ourselves from from death to life, but it's through the power of God, drawing us, causing it, giving us the faith to accept it. It's in his hands so that none of us will boast. The fourth reality is God promised an inheritance to those who are born again. It says in verse 4, to obtain an inheritance. God is the beginning father, and he is the source, the keeper, and the protector of our inheritance. Parents usually leave an inheritance to their children, not vice versa. God is the giver here. All the way through this passage, he is the fountain of hope. He is the one overflowing, and and we who are his children are heirs to that inheritance. We are the receivers at every point. We're the receivers of his mercy, his grace, new birth, resurrection, and yes, the eternal inheritance. What is this inheritance? Who benefits? How are they part of this inheritance? The Bible is full of references to this inheritance, the inheritance of believers. 
In Ephesians 1.11 it says, In Christ we have obtained an inheritance, even been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Other passages mention the believer's inheritance. Colossians 3, verses 23 and 4. Whatever you think, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Jesus Christ. Hebrews 9, 15. Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. So if we take just verses 3 and 4, I want to leave you with five answers, and I think they're there. Blessed be God for his great mercy. Blessed be God who caused us to be born again. Blessed be God who raised Jesus Christ from the dead. Blessed be God who promised an inheritance to those who are his. And finally, blessed be God who is keeping and guarding that inheritance so that it will never, ever perish, tarnish, or fade. So let's take a look at those four characteristics of our inheritance. Our inheritance in Christ is imperishable, indestructible, everlasting, eternal. What we have in Christ is not subject to corruption or decay. In contrast, everything on earth is in the process of decaying, rusting, or falling apart. If you don't believe me, look in the mirror. You're different than you were 25 years ago. Not rusting, but you are aging. Depreciation affects our houses, our cars, our belongings. But in Matthew 6, 19 through 20, it says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on, heaven, on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. 1 Peter 1, verse 23. Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. So our inheritance is imperishable. Secondly, our inheritance is undefiled. It's pure, unblemished, preserved, perfect. What we have in Christ is free from anything that would deform, debase, or degrade it. Nothing on this earth is perfect. Even the most beautiful things of this world are flawed. And if we look close enough, we can always find imperfections. But Christ is truly perfect. He is holy, blameless, pure, set apart, exalted above all. Hebrews 7.26, our inheritance in him is also holy, blameless, and exalted, and pure. So it's imperishable. It's undefiled. It's unfading. Our inheritance in Christ never loses its color, its brilliance. It never loses its original intent, regardless. What we have in Christ endures eternal. It's endless. 
As creatures of this world, it's hard for us to imagine colors that never fade. We were just talking this morning. We had some holes on the wall over there that we were thinking of patching. Terry brought up a good point. He says, there's patina on that wall because it's been painted some years ago. So if we go and we dab it, you're going to notice it. So even though it looks bright and clean, you take new paint out of a can and you dab it up there, you're going to see those little dots. Why? Because it's aging. It's fading. Again, the excitement that we have towards our inheritance should never leave us, should never fade, should never depreciate. But remember that the things we look on in this world are not of the next. In in Revelation 21, uh, verse 5, God says, I am making everything new. In 1 Peter 5, verse 4, it says, And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. How many of us can go into our garage and look at various things that we've collected over the years? And if you're like me, you look out there and you go back in the house and close the door. Because there's too many things I need to deal with. Although this year, our goal is downsizing. So I know what kind of a job I have. I have a lot of stuff that relates to the business. But nonetheless, that's no excuse. But I go out and I look at machines that I've used over the years. They're getting old. They don't work like they used to. The paint on them is chipped. The things don't function the same way. The gears don't turn like they did. They've got residual things on the side of them. When you go and you strip a floor, they have stuff that leaked out. And instead of cleaning it, you just leave it and it's dried and there it is. So you have a visual understanding of things that are diminishing. But our own lives are the same way. We don't live forever. Saw a picture the other day. Shelly showed me of the oldest person in the world. 120 plus or something like that, was it? Anyway, and I thought myself, oh, Lord, please. I don't want to be that old. Not, not even to get my picture in something special that says I'm the oldest person. I don't want to go there. But it's inevitable that these bodies are diminishing. When a baby is born, they are new. They have a certain smell to them, a freshness, a cleanness. But then as the baby grows older and you start giving them food and you have to change them, that all changes. Fourthly, our inheritance is reserved. What we have in Christ is being reserved for us in heaven. Our crown of glory has our name on it. Although we enjoy many blessings as the children of God here on earth, our true inheritance, our true home, is reserved for us in heaven. That's why we are often referred to as aliens, sojourners, exiled, Foreigners. However, the Holy Spirit guarantees that we will receive eternal life in the world to come. In fact, when you believed, you were marked in him with a seal. The promised Holy Spirit who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance. Ephesians 1, 13 and 14, it says, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth the gospel of your salvation and believed in him were sealed with the promise of the Holy Spirit who was the guarantee 
of our inheritance until we acquire complete possession of it to the praise of his glory. In John 17, 11, Jesus prayed for his followers, Holy Father, protect them by the power of your name. We are secure and guarded in the Almighty. As children, we are adopted into his family. We now have become the beneficiaries of his will. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings, in order that we may also share in his glory, Romans 8.17. One day, we will take full possession of our portion, of our heritage, of our full inheritance. Patrick Henry, one of the original founding fathers, whose famous quote, give me liberty or give me death, said this about inheritance. This is all the inheritance I give to my dear family. But the religion of Christ will give them one which will make them rich indeed. He had a proper perspective. Someday, God and man will dwell together in the new Jerusalem. The river of life will flow from God's throne. The healing tree of life with 12 kinds of fruit will grow. There will be no light there because the eternal light of Christ will fill this new heaven and this new earth and shine upon all the heirs of God's inheritance. David writes in Psalm 16, verse 5 and 6, Lord, you alone are my portion, my cup. You make my lot secure. The boundary lines have fallen for me in a pleasant place. Surely I have a delightful inheritance. And finally, this inheritance is guarded. Guarded. Believers are guarded for glory. All believers are being kept by God's power. And this word translated kept is a military word that means guarded by an army garrison or shielded. And the tense of the verb verb reveals that we are constantly and continuously being guarded by God, assuring us that we shall safely arrive in his presence. That gives such hope that God is constantly and continuously guarding. We may not feel that way going through situations and circumstances, but that doesn't change that God is there. John 10, 28 through 29 says, I give them eternal life and they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Believers are not kept by their own power, but by God's power. Our faith in Christ has united us to him, and what? In that, his power now guards us and guides us and protects us. We are not kept by our own strength, but by his faithfulness. It's encouraging to know that we are guarded for glory. According to Romans 8.30, we have already been glorified. John 17.24 says, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory, that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. Jude 24.25 says, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling 
and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, now, and forever. Amen. Who is the protector, providing, and promising? The only one who can give it. Not only are we born for glory, but we are kept for glory. Have you ever gone on a vacation and arrived at the hotel desk? And you go and say, my name is Ken Saragusa. And they look it up and they say, sorry, I have no reservation for you. Why, I made it a month ago. I know, sir, but it's not here. Okay, well, what are you going to do about it? Well, we're full up. You're going to have to go to another hotel. No, 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 you don't understand. I saw this on, on, on the internet, and I want this hotel because I want that room. I'm sorry, sir, there's nothing we can do. I can send you to a sister hotel, but it's going to cost more. <laughs> Wait a minute. First, you don't have my room. Now you're going to charge me more? Guess what? That'll never happen in heaven. It's already there. We've already inherited because we're in Christ. It's waiting for us. There are things waiting for us we don't even comprehend. Even John in the book of Revelation had a hard time expressing what he was seeing. Imagine, in your wildest dreams, the most incredible thing, you might be somebody who loves the outdoors. In my business, I get to see multi-million dollar houses. The most expensive house I was ever privy to was over $20 million. 15,000 square feet. Three levels on two acres of land, swimming pool, tennis court, whatever it is. The different things that are in these houses would blow your mind. The types of tile imported from all over the world. And I'm looking at that saying, that's not even close to what heaven is going to be like. As beautiful as this is, it doesn't compare. So the hope of our salvation, believers are born for, born for glory, believers are guarded. Secondly, the joy of our, our salvation. Believers are being prepared. Did you know there's danger on the way to heaven? We need ongoing protection after our conversion. Our security doesn't mean we're home free. There is a battle that, to be fought. And in this battle, we need protection to help far beyond what we can supply for ourselves. The assurance of heaven should be a great encouragement to all of us today. A songwriter expressed it this way, who can mind the journey when the road leads home? I love that. If suffering today means glory tomorrow, then suffering becomes a blessing to us today. The unsaved have their glory now, but it will be followed by eternal suffering away from the glory of God. I don't know how many of you have heard this phrase, but it says, this is as close as a non-believer will ever get to heaven and as close a believer will ever get to hell. The second reason for hope is essentially the same as the first, namely the hope, but there's a difference. In verse 3 and 5, the point is that the inheritance awaits us in heaven, imperishable, unfading, what's being kept and guarded, no matter what trials we face. In verses 6 and 7, the point is different. Namely, that the trials themselves have a part 
in getting us ready to enjoy that inheritance to the fullest measure. We don't just look beyond the trials to the sure hope. We look to God's design in those trials to see how God is working those trials together for our good. John Calvin writes of his trials and inheritance. He says, we do not have the full enjoyment at present. Talking about inheritance. We walk in hope. We do not see the things as if they were present, but we see it by faith. Although then the world gives itself liberty to trample us under a foot. As they say, although our Lord keeps us tried with many temptations and trials, although he humbles us in such a way that it may seem we are as sheep appointed to the slaughter, so that we are continually at death's door, yet we are not destitute of a good remedy. And why, seeing that the Holy Spirit reigns in our hearts, we have something for which to give praise, even in the midst of our trials. Therefore, we rejoice, we mourn, we grieve, we give thanks, we're content, and we wait. What is the preparation for glory? Peter used the word trials rather than tribulations or persecutions in its original because he is dealing with the general problems that these believers were facing and face us today. Christianity can and should be a life of tremendous joy. First, because we have a great and fail-safe future to look forward to beyond our trials. And secondly, because God has designed to increase our joy in that future by means of the trials we face today. If we look at the phrase in verses 6 and 7, in verse 6 it says, if necessary. And then at the beginning of verse 7 it says, so that. In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved or distressed by various trials. What kind of necessity is this? Who or what is making these trials stressful and necessary? Obviously God. In 3.17, he says, 1 Peter 3.17, It is better if God should will it so that you suffer for doing what is right rather than for doing what is wrong. Or again in 1 Peter 4.19, Let those also who suffer according to the will of God entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. The idea of these trials are designed by God. So when Peter says in verse 6, If it's necessary, you have been distressed by various trials, he means if God deems it so, you will go through trials. But why would God do that? Why would he allow that? And that leads to those, that word that or so that. And this gives the reason why God would deem it necessary that we would go through the distresses of trials. So that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. The verse, this verse reveals God's design for our trials. The design is that our trials would refine the genuineness, the authenticity, and the true identity of our faith. The way fire refines gold. 
I don't know how many of you are familiar with the TV program Gold Rush. It's on Fridays. I started watching it when it began a long time ago. And I'm always fascinated by the amount of dirt that has to go through these boxes to get this little amount of gold. And how valuable it is. I mean, thousands and thousands of yards of dirt are dumped through this special apparatus that separates with water. And at the end of the day, little specks of gold are accumulated. And then they take up these, they look like blankets, roll them up and take all the stuff out. Then they have to put the gold in a certain pan, heat it up, get all the impurities out. And then what they have left is this big pile of yellow dust. That's not dust, it's particles. And they weigh it at the end of every show. Sometimes 30, 40 ounces. Other times it's four to 500 ounces. And at the price of gold at 1200 and some odd dollars, it's up to six to $700,000 in this little pan. But it's been refined to get to that point. And what it had to go through to get there is amazing. Similarly, we, on our trials, deal with that too. So let's look at the first one. In God's design, our trials are brief. Thank you, Lord. And in brief is a relative term. It's a relative term. Brief might mean to you a week. Some people have been going through a trial for years. But in the perspective of eternity in this life, it's brief. In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, So when the phrase little while is compared to a lifetime on earth to our eternity in heaven, there is no comparison. But it's hard for us to comprehend that. James 4.14 says, You are just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanish. And it says, After you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. And that's found in verse 10. In God's design, our trials can be grievous. The word in verse 6, you have been distressed or aggrieved by various trials. Peter's not suggesting that we take a careless attitude toward our trials because that would be deceitful. Trials produce what we call, or in this particular instance, a heaviness. It's the same word to express. Express, express grief or pain in uh, the Garden of Gethsemane that our Lord was going through when he was praying. It also is expressed in the same word as 1 Thessalonians 4.13 when the saints are the, uh, the sorrow of the saints of their dearly departed ones. As we too today, when we lose somebody, we're grieved. And so the proof of our faith stays planted in the ground even though branches thrash in the wind and the leaves remain green and the fruit grows. Why? Because our roots go down by the stream of God's sovereign grace and we trust him for a good design. I came across a story that kind of exemplifies this. It's the story of the pine. You may have heard this before. It says, One day a boy and his father went into the mountains and they took shelter from the storm in the protection of some great boulders that lay like sleeping giants close to the crest of the lonely ridge. 
As the two looked upward, they saw the wind lay its grim hands on the mountain pine that towered from the summit of the ridge. It was a sentinel that could escape no danger, an outpost to receive the first shock of the enemy's attack. Savagely, the wind tore at it, shook it violently, and howled through its branches. To the boy, the tree strong, the, to the boy, the tree, strong though it was, seemed about to be torn into pieces. Look, father, he said, gazing upward, what the wind is doing to that pine. The full fury of the blast just then made the pine shudder and sway. It heaved desperately against the black sky. Storms are an old story to the tree, said the father. A tree like that lives in a struggle from the time it's high enough to catch the first breath of air. A tree is storm-strengthened on a windy site. The strongest trees are always those that have weathered the greatest number of gales. Besides, the question is not what is happening to the tree, but what is happening in the tree. The pine does not really seem to mind fighting the storm, does it, son? No, because it is able to withstand the strongest wind, the father answered. It is the same with us. It really doesn't matter what happens to us, but what matters a great deal is what happens in us. A faith that cannot be tested cannot be trusted. Too many professing Christians have a false faith or a said faith, and this will be revealed in the trials of fire. In 2 Corinthians 1, 8-9, Paul describes this very refining design of God in his distress. It says, We do not want you to be unaware, brethren, of our affliction, which came to us in Asia, that we were burdened excessively beyond our strength, so that we despair even of life. That's the fire. Indeed, we had the sentence of death within ourselves in order that we should not trust in ourselves, but in the God who raised the dead. That's the gold. Our trials do not last forever. They are for a season. When God permits his children to go through the furnace, he keeps an eye on the clock and his hand on the thermostat. If we rebel... He may have to reset the clock or turn up the thermostat a little. But if we submit, he will not permit us to suffer one minute longer than is needed. The important thing is that we learn the lesson he wants, us, he wants to teach us and that we bring him glory to him and glory to him alone. This explains why Peter is associating rejoicing with suffering. While we may not be able to rejoice as we look around in our trials, we can rejoice as we look ahead and look up. You may be here this morning and trials have left you. You may be just entering into one. You may be going through one. You may be looking down the road at one. God only knows. But I want to encourage you, as I've been encouraged through my trials, that once I take my eyes off self and put them on God, my troubles seem to dissipate. They don't go away. But I find peace. And there's only one place you can find peace, through those trials. And that's with God. 
So we are, <clears throat> we are born for glory. We are guarded for glory. We are being prepared for glory. And fourthly, believers can enjoy God's glory now. This is the testimony of our salvation. It takes courage to live out our salvation in the world around us, but the effect our lives have may change the lives of those around us. <clears throat> the Christian mindset of life is not pie in the sky by and by. It carries with it a present dynamic that can turn suffering into glory. Peter gave four distinctive distinctives for enjoying the glory now, even within the midst of our trials. It says in verse 8 and 9, Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him, you believe in him. And rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. The first distinctive, their love for Christ. In John 4, in 1 John 4, 16 and 19, it says, So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. For God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. And we love him because he first loved us. Our love for Christ is not based on physical sight because we haven't seen him. It is based on our spiritual relationship with him and what the word has taught us and promised us about him. The Holy Spirit has poured out God's love into our hearts, Romans 5, 5. And we return that love to him. When you find yourself in some type of trial and you hurt, immediately lift your eyes and heart to Christ. In true love and worship, why? Because this will take the poison and the sting out of the experience and the trial you're going through and replace it with God's healing grace. Our enemies want to use life's trials to bring out the worst in us. God wants to use those very same trials to bring out the best. If we love ourselves more than we love him, we will not experience any of that glory now. The file will burn us. It won't purify us. Secondly, their belief and trust in Christ Romans 15:13 says may the god of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the holy spirit you may abound in hope we must live by faith and not by sight Romans 8:28 doesn't say that we see all things working together for good it says that we know all things are working together for good to those who love him and are called according to his purpose Faith means surrendering all to God and obeying his word in spite of our circumstances, in spite of consequences. Love and faith go together. When you love someone, you trust them. And faith and love together help to strengthen hope. For where you find faith and love, you will find confidence for the future. How can you grow your faith during times of testing and suffering? The same way we grow in faith when things seem to be going well. By feeding on God's word, prayer, fellowship with one another. All those things deepen our love for Christ. It's a basic principle of Christian living that we spend much time in the word. Especially when God is testing us and Satan is tempting us. Thirdly, their joy in Christ 
Philippians 4, 7, uh, chapter 4, verse 4, 7, we know this one. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say, rejoice. <clears throat> Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. 1 Peter 4, 12 and 13 says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Rejoice in Christ. And fourthly, through all this, they were receiving the goal of their faith through Christ. 1 Peter 5, 4 says, And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Believing and receiving is God's way of meeting our needs. If we love him, we trust in him, we can rejoice in him. Then we can receive from him all that we need to turn those trials into triumphs, defeats into victories, and heartaches into praise. Charles Spurgeon had a saying, short, Little faith will take your soul to heaven, but great faith will bring heaven to your soul. Like that. It's not enough that we long for heaven during times of suffering, for anybody can do that. What Peter urges readers to do was exercise love, faith, and rejoicing so that they might experience some of God's glory in the midst of their suffering. True Christianity is loving, trusting, and rejoicing in Christ. And Peter adds in verse 9, in this you are now progressively receiving the goal of it all, the salvation of your soul. The final fullness of your salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. We are now receiving in part what we will receive in whole. And as we finish... Romans 8, 17 through 18. And if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If we indeed suffer with him so that we may be glorified with him. I consider that our present sufferings are not comparable to the glory that will be revealed in us. Romans 8, 22 through 25 says, We know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until the present time. Not only that, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Holy Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved, but hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what he can already see? But if we hope for what we do not see yet, we wait for it patiently. Colossians 1, 21 through 22. Now it is God who establishes both us and you in Christ. He anointed us, placed his seal on us, and put his spirit in our hearts as a pledge of what is to come. 
And finally, Colossians 1, or Colossians 3, 1 through 4. And this is the encouragement. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are here. For you have died in your old life, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. We are born for glory. We are being guarded for glory. We are being prepared for glory. And as we experience various trials in our lives, we can enjoy God's glory here and now. And as we love him, we trust in him, even can rejoice in him and live for him. Our eternal inheritance awaits us to be completed in that day when we will see him face to face. We must never lose sight of that. Never lose sight that no matter what you're going through, there is an inheritance. For those of you who know the Lord, who have called upon his name for your salvation. There's an inheritance waiting for you now. You are heirs. Even if you've never been mentioned in anybody's will as an heir, you've been mentioned in his. And I would be in his will rather than anybody else. Because the best is yet to come. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you this morning for the encouragement of your word. Thank you, Lord, that you're guarding us, protecting us. Your hold is on us. No matter what trials we face, what circumstances we find ourselves under, by your grace, we can be over them. Lord, I pray that if there's anybody here who is not an heir to that inheritance, Lord, would you quicken their hearts even now that the truth of your word would penetrate the truth of your word would reveal the truth of your word would convict the Lord we can't become heirs unless we're adopted and we can't be adopted unless we're in Christ so I pray today Lord those who are uncertain would be certain. For our inheritance awaits us. We think we have a lot of good things here. But Father, you've assured us that the best is yet to come. And we eagerly await our salvation. Thank you, Father, for this time. We ask you to bless it. Lord, as we leave this place, whatever we walk out of these doors with, I pray, Father, that you would be glorified and honored in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's all raise it.